Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In episode 10 of our second season, I had a fascinating conversation with Tone Dreesen, principal at Architects DCA in Ottawa and past president of the Ontario Association of Architects. During our conversation, Tone spoke about his upbringing in the Netherlands, his early life and how that influenced his very early decision to become an architect at around age 10, a decision he does not regret to this day. Tone spoke about his love of travel, cooking, and his unstoppable drive to change architecture's perception in the public's consciousness. So we're here with Tone Dreesen, principal of Architects DCA. Thanks, Tone, for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So let's start with uh, questions right, right away. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure thing. So I'm an architect. Um, I'm a dad and I'm from Ottawa. I started my practice even before I was licensed, just doing freelance design and drafting when I was still in school. And uh, after graduating in 2000, um, just kept on doing that kind of thing until I finished my exams, licensed in 2005, and I've uh, been running a practice ever since in one form or another, either as a sole proprietor or uh, now as uh, president of a bigger company of about 10 people. Uh, my background, um, you know, mostly from Ottawa, most of the last uh, 25, 30 years, uh, but I've lived in Vancouver, Holland, uh, and L.A. That's quite the uh, international uh, experience. What, what was that like to live in all those different places? Uh, Holland was as a kid, so I don't have a lot of memories of it, but my whole family is in Belgium, so periodically go back and visit, which was a lot of fun. And um, L.A. was really uh, sort of, uh, you know, I moved there when I was, I think, 19 or something with my girlfriend and then married her. So uh, that was certainly an experience, waiting tables in Beverly Hills and, you know, seeing life in L.A. And after a big enough earthquake and the Rodney King riots, we decided to go home. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good enough reason to come back. So can you tell us a little bit what you were like as a kid? Uh, as a kid, I was an only child, so I was probably a little bit weird and a bit of a loner. Um, I know I spent a lot of time as a kid playing with Lego and, um, and model trains. I know I spent a lot of time doing that and a lot of time reading. Um, I was really curious all the time, so I would read and read and read, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I think I got exposed to uh, sort of 60s, 70s rock music from my parents when, from their lives and their time in California in the 60s. So I probably had a, a pretty odd musical taste for my, my, my friends. Like, I know people today and they talk about the music they grew up with and I grew up with music a decade before them. So that was kind of probably a little weird and still affects me to this day. And you know, the stuff I like is 60s and early 70s. Um, as a kid, I was, uh, I was probably a little bit weird. Um, you know, my parents were, we were immigrants here and so I didn't really know how things worked. And I always remember, you know, weird games that I would go to friends' houses at birthday parties and there were these strange games and my parents tried to replicate them and it didn't quite work out, so. Is that because of the cultural difference? Yeah, I think it was a little bit different and, and sort of wanting to fit in and, and wanting to be accepted and wanting to be a part of, you know, my friends. And we moved around a lot as a kid, so I was often the new kid in town. You know, sometimes, sometimes I'd go to places and I'd be in a school for a year and change schools or then move and so I was often like the new kid trying to fit in and and that sort of has its own little pressure you know you want to be accepted yeah I can share some of those experiences um what did you want to be growing up uh 
I think as a, as a little kid, I probably had like the sort of classic, you know, you want to be a fireman, you want to be a Superman, you want to be, you know, all of that stuff that you wanted to be as a little kid. Um, but I, I think that um, I was probably about 10, 12 years old when I first went to my mom's work and she was working um, in a landscape architect's office as a sort of a graphics technician or something. And, and I remember going to her work uh, after school in grade I don't know, four or five or something, and seeing these drawings and like cool site plans. And she was putting, you know, drawing trees on them and writing names and text and stuff like that. And I thought this was just like so amazing. You could get paid to do drawings. And <laughs> I didn't really care so much about the trees and the bricks, but I really loved the, the fact that you could draw buildings. I thought that was pretty cool. And, and I probably latched onto architecture then, even though I didn't really know what it was, and uh, sort of pursued that sort of probably not with the greatest academic rigor through high school. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but it's always what I always wanted to do. So, was there a pivotal moment where you realized you were going to be an architect, or it was more of a gradual transition? Um, I think I I don't remember when it happened, but I knew I, I know that I've always wanted to be an architect as long as I've had sort of a conscious memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't remember ever really seriously wanting to be anything else. So, if you could do it all over again, would you pick a different career? Not a chance. Love it every minute of it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about traveling. And uh, do you have a favorite place you to travel to, and why would that be? Favorite place to travel? Um, I've really come to enjoy travel in Europe over the last few years. Um, we went to Venice for the Architecture Biennale in 2016, and then we just came back from the 2018 Biennale in a week in Florence. So I guess I've really come to enjoy Italy. Um, you know, the pace, the, the flow of life, and just parking yourself in a patio and having a glass of champagne and mm-hmm. relaxing and watching people go by is just really enjoyable. Um, so probably Italy, um, but I've really also come to enjoy other parts of Europe. Um, I and mean, we had a few hours in Copenhagen. I had overnight in Belgium and we had a week in uh, London last year. So I guess sort of European travel overall, I'm just really coming to enjoy. So is there anything in particular that you find compelling about Italy and Europe in general? I'd, I'd say the architecture. I mean, it's like a, a bit of a pat response, but I've really come to enjoy what it's like to be in an old city, a really dense city, a place that's really walkable, um, you know, places where you can just go and park on a, on a sidewalk cafe and relax and, and sort of experience the life around you, the scale of the city. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, if your latest tweets are any indication, it seems like you've really enjoyed uh, Italy, so mm-hmm. I can see that. Um, how would your practice, so we're going to go back a little bit more into architecture now. Uh, I know we're jumping a little bit all over the place here, but Um, how would your practice be different now from when you started? How would it be different? Um, it's probably a little more focused on, I guess it's a little more focused, you know, in general. Um, I think that when I first started my practice, I was really desperate just to do anything for anybody who was willing to pay me to do something I love doing. Um, I'm probably a little more selective now is that I, I like working for people or with clients They really appreciate what they're getting, um, you know, that they really enjoy it um, and, the, and the quality that I like to bring to things. Um, so I think that's, that's probably a difference. I think if I was to do something different, um, I think I'd, I'd focus a little bit more on some areas of, of learning, some academic credentials that, that I either never had an opportunity to get or was never really exposed to. And, and so let's go back to the idea of the being more choosy with your clients. Um, How do you, because it's a challenge for any creative, I think, I, I can speak for most people. How do you find and vet those clients, make sure that they're the right fit for you? I think like any kind of, you know, procurement, and procurement is one of my big, you know, soapboxes, but 
like anything, it's it's a it's a dialogue, it's a conversation. Um, you know, it's it's rare to you don't get a client who just kind of calls you up out of the blue and you write them a one-page letter and and suddenly you're off to the races and a hundred million dollar condo appears. You know, there's really a dialogue and a conversation, and I think that's the place where you can really talk with clients and really get a sense of what they what they want and what's important to them, and then and then start you know, challenging them and kind of educating them and, and saying like, look, you know, you could do this, you could build mass timber, you could build, you know, you could build this kind of thing, you could build a, you know, a, a mid-rise building and, and sort of challenging what their preconceived notions of what a built form might look like and, and start to really generate a conversation with them. And, and that's really the fun part for me is the, the I, it's sort of like the sales pitch, but the, the, the conversation that leads to a project and the creativity that I can show by, by showing solutions. Uh, it seems, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that you may have a slightly different approach from most other architects. Does that ring true, like in the way you deal with your clients? A little bit, yeah. I mean, we, my practice history, you know, from you know, prior years and partners and that kind of stuff, there's a lot of government work and a lot of RFP-driven stuff where you don't get that conversation and you're really relying on you know, the, the way you've written a resume or the way you've written a, you know, a, a, a project job sheet or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what's getting you the points to get you in the door. And then once you're, once you're in the door and you won the project, then it's the conversation and that's the part that I really enjoy. I, I really don't like responding to RFPs, but I also know that responding to government RFPs is like a big part of what I need to do to keep the practice going. So it's sort of this, this balance, right? The RFP, I don't get the conversation, but the conversations that I do get to have in private clients lead to really some of the most fun projects. So let's go back to the idea of um, uh, procurement and you briefly mentioned it's one of your uh, soapbox, soapbox yeah. and you talk a lot about this. Um, where did you get this idea to reform the procurement process and how do you think it could um, in the long term sustainably change for the better? Um, I think the first real run-in I had with um, procurement was getting burned, um, and that really sort of, um, I'd say that that really, really ignited a fire of sort of resentment that I'd done all this work and didn't get anywhere, and the stupidity of what I was forced to go through to then not even be given the courtesy of the interview, um, and it was, it was a really absurd project. Um, it was for a visitor center for the um, Upper Canada Village, mm -hmm. um, and you know, that you had to Put, put together these like project sheets of your fire, you know, fire consultant, and you had to show photographs of the work they had done. Well, it's like, what do I have a photograph of, of some fire dampers and some fire stopping? Like, it's kind of ridiculous. We had to go through this effort. And, and when they were writing that RFP, they were also issuing an RFP for, for Kingston for a similar type of project. And, and it, as the project unfolded, they said, you know, in the Kingston one, they said that you had to, in order to be considered, you had to have done a lead gold visitor center in Ontario in the last five years. That was worth at least five million bucks. Mm -hmm. And which is absurd, like no one has done that, right? There's like one, one company that's done that. So it really was such an absurd and unfair RFP process. And, and when the one that I submitted for, they said they would interview the top three people and only three people submitted. And they said, well, we decided not to interview you because we didn't think you'd make it. And I was just like, well, you said you'd interview the top three, so, you know, goddammit, I want my fucking interview. Um, at least let me, give me the conversation to have the conversation with you and, and show you that I can do this work, because it's not complicated stuff, right? It wasn't rocket science. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, we decided not to. And we just unilaterally decided not to, and it was a, it was a project management company that was doing the RFP. So I complained to my, to my MPP, 
And the MPP said, well, sorry, we can't, we can't help you. It's, uh, you know, we handed that work over to Infrastructure Ontario or whatever they were called at that time, and they gave it to a project manager, so it's out of our hands, we can't help you, sorry. And I just felt, you know, like this is so unfair. This is public money. You know, this is a couple million dollars worth of work, and and you're screwing out, you're screwing over small businesses, people that could do this work and really want to, and you invest so much time and effort and energy in it, and then and then you yank the rug out from under people, and that really ignited a, a fire of resentment. I was really pissed off about it, and then uh, I guess a couple years later. Um, you know, I was, I was in, you know, a committee meeting for the OAA and I was really kind of getting curious about how the OAA worked in terms of its governance and its council and that kind of stuff. And I started getting kind of interested in what was happening at the OAA um, in terms of, you know, the way it was going and the change in direction and, and things that were happening at the council and governance level. And, uh, and then when an opportunity came up in 2012 or 2011, I guess I ran for election and, and in 2012 was, was successful and I won a seat representing Eastern Ontario. And, and that was just fantastic, and I loved it, uh, and I really enjoyed uh, being on council. And then being on council really ignited more of a passion in me for how we can make architecture better and how we can actually serve people better, because that's really what it's about, is I'm not making buildings, you know, to make myself rich. Like, okay, yeah, I like, I like to make a buck, but it's not about, you know, me and my ego. It's about wanting to serve the people of Ontario or the people of Canada. And that's the really frustrating part, is when you see an RFP and you think, okay, yeah, I can do this and I can, I can deliver this project, I've got some great ideas, and you, know, you don't get anywhere. And you, know, you have a conversation with the procurement managers and they're like, yeah, sorry, we really liked your ideas, but you know, we couldn't give you any points for that thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, why not? Well, because you know, we were looking for someone to do this. Yeah, but that's not possible. You know? and so it just becomes a really frustrating bureaucratic bullshit process, mm -hmm. and, and it's just so frustrating that it just makes you just not even want to bother. Yeah, and so from what I understand, you still respond to RFPs, correct? Yeah. So uh, I have a couple of questions in mind, but let's start with that. How do you prevent that from happening to yourself when you respond to RFPs now? Do you pick and choose which ones you respond to? Mm -hmm. Do you try to kind of derail the process and get the inside track or in any way you can, or how does that work for you? So the, the biggest thing is that I'm a lot choosier about it. Um, I'm a lot choosier about how I respond to an RFP. Um, I met, remember last uh, September, I started really, September I basically decided I wasn't going to run for a third term of council. So I decided to really throw my efforts into, um, into RFPs and building the business back because my time on council and everything had really, it was really taxing on the business and it was really struggling. So I started responding to RFPs, and I, I was I was fairly choosy about what I responded to, um, but I, I responded to uh, probably about 25 or 30 RFPs. And in staff time, um, you know, not even counting my time, just strictly in staff salaries and printing costs, we spent over $150,000 in four months uh, responding to RFPs, and we didn't get a single one. Um, and and that that kind of like level of rejection is 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 both humbling, but it's also it's also really hard because we went through the process and you know, you'd get the debrief afterwards and they were like, well, we didn't give you any points for this thing uh, because you didn't say you'd deliver us a lead gold building. And I was like, well, your building can't be lead gold. Like you're not even gonna make, you know, you're not gonna get, you know, meet these criteria. You're not gonna be able to do it. And they said, well, everybody else said that, that, said that we could. And I said, well, it's, it's not physically possible. Oh, really? And I said, yeah, like it's not possible to do this. And and they didn't understand it because they're asking for impossible things. So the stuff I offered to them, they appreciated, but they couldn't give me any points for it. And it was like I was offering them something even better. And that just really got really frustrating. Um, and what it taught me was that part of the RFP process is that you have to play the game. 
you have to go in and you have to say, yeah, I'm going to deliver this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to meet your schedule, no matter how absurd or stupid the schedule is, I'm going to meet it. And then you're forced to play the contractor's game of then say, okay, well, you know, you've got this absurd schedule, well, you're three days late, so here's my delay claim, here's my extra. Here's my extra for every door or window that you want to add to the scope of work, here's my extra. And that's really, like, that's not, that's not fair and that's not, not fun, but when you're forced into a position of having to bid low to get the job, um, you feel like you don't have a choice. Yeah, that sounds pretty grim. So uh, that uh, and that begs an interesting question: is why do you think procurement people have uh, such unreal expectations? Are they, are they never architects, or they just don't know how buildings work? What's how is there how is it possible there's such a disconnect? For the most part, procurement people aren't architects. They don't know what architects are, and they have no clue what architecture is or how we work. Um, I had a, a a conversation with a procurement officer. Uh, about some school renovations and she said, you know, I don't understand why this is so difficult. I've been doing procurement for 30 years. My whole career is in procurement. And I said, well, when's the last time you did procurement of, of architecture and professional services? She said, never. I usually do paper and on office supplies. And I said, well, it's, it's not the same thing. Like, it's not the same process. And she said, I don't even know why we need to hire an architect anyway. It's just a school renovation. It's just an addition to a school. Why would you, do we even need an architect? And so it was really like, wow, okay, you have no clue what architects do or why we're here, like not even the beginnings. And that's, and that's just really frustrating, like that, you know, the general population as a whole doesn't really understand what architecture is and what architects do. And the preconceived sort of notions are, are really harmful. And, and that's, that's part of what's become really like my voice in advocacy is to try to, you know, have that education and have that conversation with the public that this is what architects do. So I'm, I'm going to try to pace myself because I have a million questions coming to my head right now. No problem. But I want to stay on procurement just a little bit longer. Um, how has your role as the OAA president or the past OAA president, because my understanding is you just uh, left that post, right? Uh, I was president in 2015 and 2016, and then okay. 2017 I was the past president and then off council. So um, how has this position helped you understand the RFP process better, how to change it, and what's your hope for the future? So I think one of the things that's, that's really changed is that um, being OA president has given me a bit of credibility um, that I might not normally have had, um, but it's also given me um, a bit of a voice, like it's helped me um, sort of focus what I need to say, both in writing and in interviews and in, you know, publications and speeches and that kind of stuff. It help, it's helped me focus um, the message and, and taught me how to communicate better. Um, you know, being the OAA president is a lot of work and you end up in front of sort of the media, you know, a fair bit and, and kind of conversations about things. And it can't be just my position. It really needs to be the OAA's position. And really what's really happened uh, kind of over the last couple of years is there's been so much more focus on, on procurement that's been dragging for years on you know, things that are just unfair and things that are borderline illegal, if not outright illegal, in the way RFPs are being structured, that, that I certainly can't take, you know, credit for having fixed. Um, but, you know, I feel like I've been part of the momentum that's moving towards to, to change the process. And then part of that has also been um, advocacy work. That I've been doing advocacy stuff with Public Works and helping to change the procurement model that Public Works uh, is, 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 is using. Um, and they actually launched yesterday their first pilot project in a new procurement model. Um, and not just because of my advocacy, but because I helped sort of push the rock up the hill to, to make it a success um, that, that we're going to try a new procurement model. And from what I understand, the new president, uh, it's John Stevenson, right? He seems very aligned on those issues mm -hmm. too. So I guess that's a good thing. Um, 
so let's talk about something a little less uh, depressing, maybe. And what, you know, in an ideal world, what would the procurement process be like? And to make it more fair, maybe more legal, and just uh, less of uh, a bunch of bureaucratic bullshit, too. What would it be like? Um, it'd be a quality-based system. Um, and the frustrating part is that you talk to procurement officers and politicians, and they say, no, 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 we, we do have a quality-based system. Basically, the piece that needs to change is the amount of effort that needs to go into an RFP, and, and that's really driven through a QBS, a quality-based selection, which is the only legal method of federal and state procurement in most of the United States for the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, so really, it needs to start with an expression of interest, um, which is kind of like a job application, you know, a cover letter, a resume, a little bit of company information, some indication that you're interested in the project, um, and then and that creates a bit of a short list, um, and and then a, and then a description of you know obviously tied to that is a description of the scope of work and how you're going to respond to it. But RFPs really need to get away from really prescriptive formats for you know pay, you know three pages to describe your approach and methodology and two pages to describe your org chart and you know, an 11 by 17 schedule for how you're going to administer the project. Like they need to get away from all of this because that's the stuff that takes forever. And mm. it's all bullshit because it takes so long for a project to get through all of that. And then the RFP procurement guys have to review it and they have to score it, that the schedule is meaningless. All it does is sort of give you an example of what you could do. It's not, it's not actually the project schedule. Mm -hmm. And they really need to get away from that so that once they've got an expression of interest and they know who you are, then they might do an interview. And then from the interviews, you know, have some conversations about the opportunities and, and the ideas. Because in an RFP, like, why would I put down in an RFP response, you know, here's my solution, here's my suggestion, you know, because I'm, I'm giving away my ideas, I'm giving away my knowledge, and I'm giving that to you for free. And then somebody looks at this and says, hey, here's a cool idea. Well, we're not going to hire this guy, but he's got this great idea. Let's give that idea to the guy we did hire and and like what's the point then I've lost my sort of business edge or I've lost my you know the opportunity mm -hmm. and and so that quality based selection process really needs to be adapted so that there's a a, a way for people to to, to show their innovation and their ideas. And then, and then from that, you can have a fair discussion about fees, right? We can sit down across the table from each other and say, okay, well, you know, you want me to do X, Y, and Z by next Tuesday. Okay, well, here's how I need to achieve that. Or here's how your schedule is unreasonable. Or I can do that, but only if you're going to deliver me, you know, A, B, and C, then I can meet those schedule objectives. And if you want it in that date, here's the fee. And they, and then you, you as the client can say, gee, I wasn't expecting the fee to be that much. And you can have a negotiation. You can have a conversation about how I got to my number. And and, and it's fair, you know, and that's and that's really the critical part is that it's fair. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about the uh, QBS process in the U.S. Is that for public projects? Yep. And is it is it in your mind a good example of what works, or could it be better? Uh, I think it's a pretty good example of what works. Um, the the piece that needs to be tied to that is that it has to celebrate design excellence, uh, and that's a key part of this. Is that you have to be able to include design excellence as a criteria. And design excellence isn't just about, you know, shiny and pretty and award winning, but you know, design excellence can be delivering something on time and on budget. Like we did a chemistry and radiation research lab that had less than two percent change orders driven by consultants over a sixty million dollar project and it was delivered on time. Like that's pretty impressive for something that's a incredibly complex little building. So to me, that represents design excellence because I met the client's objectives, gave them a beautiful building, it functions, and it was delivered on time. Every deliverable was on time, and it was on budget, and there were no almost no change orders. And and so design excellence has to be part of the conversation. 
you know, and that's both setting prescriptive criteria like, you know, an energy performance, lead silver, whatever, or, or understanding what role architects have to play in the overall process. You know, how can we help facilitate conversations about you know, schedule planning or moving of an occupation of the building or equipment design. How can architects be part of that conversation um, so that the client gets the building that they're asking for? So th this leads me to an interesting point. I'm going to ask you the question. You can tell us what you think. Being a very much tied into the, the media part of architecture and how it's people communicate about it, a lot of emphasis is always post, put on the aesthetics, um, what it looks like, what are the materials, sometimes even who the designer is because they're a little bit of a star. Um, but there's very little talked about in terms of how the building performs, how it serves their occupants. And to me, yeah, great architecture needs to look good, but if you have um, a cool or outrageous looking building, and I'm going to probably make enemies saying this, but I'm thinking about the OCAD Sharp Center because I've been a student in that building mm -hmm. for a few years. Um, yeah, it looks really cool and it, it put the, the school on the map and it was done by this crazy architect who sadly just passed away. Um, but the inside and the, the studio spaces were just horrible. Like they're just not comfortable. They didn't work for what they were supposed to. So. Uh, what's your take on that and how do we talk about architecture in a more meaningful way because we need to talk about how it's lived in and how it performs for its occupants and that's always kind of left aside. That's a really good point. Um, it's a really interesting perspective because you know architecture is not just about aesthetic quality and beauty but it also is is functional it also has to work um, and it has to work well um, it has to be adaptable especially in in today's age where technology changes and what might have worked for a you know a a, a sort of graphic design studio 20 years ago is not how it would work today and probably won't be how it'll work in 20 years from now. Um, and because architecture is there theoretically forever, you know, the building's got to be adaptable. Um, so function is a definitely a big part of that. And, and there are things that I think are very measurable. Um, you know, we can really measure you know, things like um, energy performance and air tightness and, you know, equivalent, um, yeah, I can't remember what the things stand for, but, you know, the energy use per square meter um, is, is, is a really important metric, right, to measure the sustainability of a building. Um, you, can, you can quantify all of that stuff, and all that stuff is really part of, like, the Design Excellence Awards from the OAA. It's not just about a pretty building, but, you know, what kind of sustainability measures do they have? And then the harder things are sort of the more you know, qualitative things like, does the building work? Is is the building well understood? Um, how do the people inside the building feel about it? Um, how well does it perform? And those are things that you can start to measure when you start looking at, you know, uh, wor workplace productivity. When you look at, uh, compare two buildings and say, well, the building that's got natural ventilation and better natural light and good views and, you know, an open floor plate that's conducive to team building and collaboration, and you get more productivity and fewer sick days and fewer health days, um, you know, time off work and that kind of stuff. You can start measuring those things, but that's more of a, of a long-term strategy. And, and there's historical data that's now being put together uh, from buildings built sort of in the last 25, 30 years where you can start to look at that, um, and, that's, and that's good. Um, but how do you measure that on a brand new building? It's, you need a little bit more time and a bit more data. And so how do you sell that to a client, to a magazine, to the public? Because it's, it's so intangible at the time the building opens that most people will probably just gloss over and say, well, well whatever. I, it looks pretty. It's good to me. Yeah. So how do you, do you have a way to like talk about this that makes it compelling for the general public? Because as architects, I'm an architect by training. We, we get it. We, yeah. It's something that's 
obvious to us, but how do you get the public on board on those things? Well, I think part of that is is media. You know, when you get um, media focus on something like you know the, the the beauty of the building and they show photographs of the building, it becomes more of a um, uh, an architectural photography competition. Um, you know, and it's glossy pictures in a magazine and no real substance. Um, that makes it that sort of that's good because it's all about the aesthetics, but that's, if that's all it is, then it's hard to really get the public to weigh in and understand why this building is good, why is this building important. So I think that a piece of this is really kind of engaging with the media and getting the media to buy into the idea that you know, the way the building functions and flows and the aesthetics, um, you know, the, the operation, the, the way it was designed um, is all part of this. Um, you know, Alex Bozikovic had a great article about um, some sort of automated CAD design building that he visited, I think it was like about a month or so ago, and he really talked about how the, all the options analysis was all generated by computer, and, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what the conclusion was, but it didn't seem like it was a very inspiring space at the end of the day, and was that actually helpful? You know, how do we make spaces that are more interesting and 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 exciting um, and convey that to the public well it's it's writers like Alex and Sean McAuliffe and Christopher Hume and Trevor body and people who write for a living and and writing for the general public so get the public to actually you know see and understand the way the building works and talk about how how beautiful the building is for sure but also how functional it is and and the important intangible parts of it like you know its operation and its energy use and things that really matter at the end of the day yeah that makes a lot of sense and uh i, I do read a lot of alex's articles and they're always very insightful so yeah. i think doors open is another good part of that mm -hmm. you start having conversations with um you know, the public and, and getting more and more buildings to be part of doors open. And that lets people into buildings, especially buildings that they normally can't see or can't get into. That really galvanizes the public to kind of come in and see, you know, how an office space uh, might work and, and how, how exciting an office space might be mm -hmm. that, that's new or that's redesigned. Yeah, I guess we get to see them all the time because they're published and we read those magazines. But for average Joe, it's probably not something they see every day. So that's a very good point, very interesting point. Uh, so let's, you briefly mentioned about uh, your um, desire to see uh, a national architecture policy. Um, can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, so I'm part of a writing committee um, that's a subgroup of a I think it's a subgroup of a committee of the National um, Canadian Architectural Licensing Authority. Um, and, and so I'm just a little piece of the puzzle. Um, but we've been working on this national architecture policy and creating an aspirational document um, to really galvanize public attention to architecture and the importance of architecture within Canada. And it's an architecture policy for Canada. Um, it's not about, you know, architects. It's not about, it's not about um, celebrating us as architects, but it's about the role of architecture in culture and in society. And this is kind of driven largely by the European architecture policies. Um, and then Quebec started this process a couple years ago and they've been down this path. And they're in the process of now adopting um, an architecture policy for Quebec. So what would, uh, understanding that it's being worked on right now, but what kind of things could we expect to see in a national architecture policy? And how do you think that would um, better the architecture industry across the country? Um, well, I think some of the things that, that I can imagine wanting to be part of that would be things like, um, you know, embedding architecture in, uh, in education. 
So how do we how do we show um, that architecture is important from grade one through grade 12? Is there a component of uh, elementary school and high school that talks about Canadian architecture, um, whether it's at a functional level, um, you know, high school drafting classes kind of thing, like back in my day, mm -hmm. um, or is it, you know, history? Is it history of architecture, the role of architecture within society, um, you know, part of culture? I think those are things that um, we can, you know, I don't know how exactly how to write that, but I think that's an important part of this. And I think about it a little bit like the seatbelt rules or the no smoking rules. Um, you know, they were teaching this to kids and then kids were bringing that home and then growing up with it, with the idea that, you know, hey, I should probably wear a seatbelt when I'm in the car. And that became something they taught their parents. So I think if kids are learning about architecture and then they're going home and they're talking to their parents and their parents are going, yeah, you know, they're learning this stuff. This is kind of interesting. And the kids are teaching their parents. And then those kids grow up with an appreciation of architecture. And it's it's a long, slow process, generational, you know, to get the public to kind of see and buy into the idea that architecture is important. I think that's a big part of it. And then I think it's also um, seeing that architecture is, is more than just, um, you know, nuts and bolts to put a building together, but that architecture can affect, you know, public health. Um, mm -hmm. Architecture can affect public safety. Um, you know, we did a, a bit of a matrix of which federal uh, ministries are affected by architecture. And we discovered that really practically every, every single one does. You know, Treasury Board, finance, uh, climate change, the environment, uh, public safety, infrastructure, defense, all of these are affected by architecture in some way. I think there were only two that didn't, and, and they're probably, even those are tangentially related to architecture. I think we couldn't figure out how architecture and the Coast Guard were related, um, but you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that are affected by architecture and that where architecture can play a role. You know, we want to make a, a more financially stable future for, for our children and our grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Well, architecture can play a big role in that by making zero energy, net zero energy buildings. So you and I grew up in Europe, so I think there's a bit more of an understanding of uh, the impact of architecture on people's life and probably a better grasp on how to put together architecture that is not negatively affecting people. Do you have any um, countries or places in mind that have uh, have that as a country where architecture is understood as being important, but also have a great architecture policy? Mm -hmm. Are there good examples out there? Definitely, I think Denmark rises to the top. You start looking at, uh, at Denmark from the perspective of um, social issues, um, social policy, um, healthcare, uh, architecture, uh, affordable housing, uh, sustainability, um, they, they get it. Uh, and I think Denmark is, is I've not visited Denmark um, probably since I was, I think, two years old, um, but I think Denmark is probably one of the leading contenders for how uh, a good national architecture policy comes through in, in built form and affects people's lives. I, w I w was assuming you were going to talk about a European country. Um, let's go back to uh, your practice in, in your work as an architect a little bit. Um, who would be your biggest influences in design? Hmm. Interesting. Uh, biggest influences in design. Or people you admire. Um, so I, I was, I was always really, um, I've always really loved Piet Mondrian. Um, I think the sort of bold use of color, um, geometric form and mathematical relationships. Um, there's always been this sort of sense of, um, uh, sense of proportion um, that I've really always loved in Piet Mondrian's paintings, and and that that I think is probably an influence. Um, I love the sculpture of uh, Michelangelo. Um, you know the the texture of um, of a piece of marble that 
was created in, you know, with, with rough tools to create something that's so silky smooth. And you can see the veins on, on David's hands, um, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to kind of, to, to move, to move the soul um, with that kind of textural sculptural quality, um, I think is, is a, is a big influence for me. Um, you know, our architect inspirations, um, I mean, a classic, of course, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, the sense of proportion and materiality, um, you know, the, the play of light, um, those things are, are important, but, you know, you can probably talk to a lot of architects and they would go, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright or Lewis Sullivan or, you know, the big names. Mm -hmm. um, I was just always really influenced and, and sort of really impressed with his work, recognizing that it is of an era and of its time. Yeah, it most definitely is, but it, it is very impressive if you're not uh, taller than five foot eight. Yeah, and if you don't have to live in it, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any mentors? And if you do, what do you get out of such a relationship? Uh, I see mentorship as a lifetime thing. Um, I you know, the mentorship that's structured by the intern architect program is sort of a drop in the bucket to what I think mentorship really needs to be. Um, so yeah, I still have mentors and I consider them um, people that I go to when I need advice or I need um, uh, either a shoulder to cry on or someone to, to listen. Um, and so, you know, current OA president, John Stevenson, I think of him as a mentor. Um, he's become a good friend and, uh, and I really appreciate the, the wisdom that he brings to conversations where we can talk about business or sailboats or families or, you know, architecture. Um, so I've really come to appreciate that. Um, you know, I have an, an older employer of mine, uh, Doug Clancy, um, from KWC Architects in Ottawa. Um, I have always looked up to him and always respected him. Um, his integrity and, um, and, and sense of, uh, sense of the right thing. Um, and his, you know, um, how do I say sort of, I guess it's stubborn. Hopefully he's not mad at me for this, but his sort of stubbornness for wanting to make sure that it's right. Mm -hmm. You know, when the drawing said, do it like this, well, God damn it, I said, do it like this for a reason. And, and I always admired that and, and I have enormous respect for him. Um, and, and I'd, so I consider those, those two guys sort of really big mentors. Um, and then, uh, and then other mentors, people that I look to for advice, um, and for help, uh, along the way, coaches, um, really. So let's talk about something a little different from architecture. And when you're not being an architect or thinking architecture, what do you do uh, for fun or what kind of hobbies do you have? I cook. I cook. I love to cook. Uh, I cooked as a, as, a, as a line cook or a dessert chef or a salad cook um, all the way through my, uh, well, basically since I was 16. I started off washing dishes, bussing tables, waiter, you know, bartender, you know, I, I cooked and I was involved in restaurants from probably the age of 16 or 17 until I was, uh, I don't know, 28 or something. Um, and, and it was, it was a job. Um, but I learned a lot and I had a lot of fun and it paid the bills. And then, and to this day, I love to cook. Um, I, I don't really follow recipes. I consider them a bit more of a guideline. Um, but I love to make dinner. I love to you know, shop for groceries and just make a really nice meal. Uh, my Facebook page is mostly pictures of food and dinner and dessert. And, and I post these pictures just, just for fun, um, you know, because this is what I love to do. This is how I relax. Mm -hmm. It is a very uh, relaxing and, uh, and, and almost meditative experience. I, I like cooking, probably not as much as you do. But So what would be like, even just recently, uh, your favorite recipe, something you really enjoy doing, making? Um, so I've, I've got a great butcher in Ottawa that um, I really, really like. And um, it's, it's good to have a sort of a good 
relationship with a, with a butcher and a vegetable vendor and that kind of thing. So um, I like a nice tri-tip steak um, grilled with um, usually three or four different vegetable dishes. I might do a roasted cauliflower, um, you know, that's really crispy and caramelized on the outside, but still kind of crunchy. Uh, I might do like a, a three bean salad with uh, red kidney beans with green and yellow wax beans and a vinaigrette, and then maybe a loaf of uh, a good sourdough bread and uh, a good bottle of wine. And then I might do like a tomato, cucumber, and you know, goat's milk uh, feta cheese salad on the side and just kind of graze my way through a meal with a bottle of wine uh, with my wife and just really enjoy that. Um, it's something my son has really come to enjoy as well. He, he starts to be 16 and he loves to, really looks forward to the sort of Sunday dinners. Yeah, it sounds like heaven. I, uh, I can't agree more with the, uh, the idea of procuring good meats. Mm -hmm. I, I recently uh, found a local farmer who sells uh, grass-fed beef and it's like night and day with the stuff yeah. you can buy at the store. And it's really important, I think. We don't spend enough time enjoying food not necessarily cooking, just enjoying the yeah. you know, European way. Just sit down and enjoy a meal. It's, uh, it's a social activity to yeah. enjoy a meal. And I'd, I'd way rather have a small, good steak than a big steak that's cheap and that I don't enjoy as much. Mm, I agree with you. Um, what's the place of creativity in your life or career or practice? place of creativity like where do I get ideas from yeah how is it is it important to you and and what role does it play in your in your life and your work so I, I I guess I don't know how others do this but I tend to sort of put an idea in the back of my head and then think about it and you know wander off and put it aside and and then you know I might be in the middle of making dinner or walking the dog or you know kind of relaxing and doing something and the idea will sort of resurface and germinate a little and then I push it back and then eventually something kind of rises to the top and I start just start sketching and I start sketching and doodling and sometimes it's completely incoherent to anybody else um, I sometimes pity my staff when I hand over this sort of incoherent little sketch um, but then I you know have this sort of sketch or this notion and then start fleshing it out and, and drawing and to me I guess a, a creative place is when there's a block of paper or a notebook in front of me with a pencil in my hand and just sort of thinking and and sometimes it just takes a while for the idea to come to fruition but just taking time um lately that's come on dog walks you know i take the dog for a walk and then let ideas kind of percolate to the top because i'm not doing anything else are there things that inspire you particularly or enable you to be more creative or do you have like a uh, an, an actual practice or habits that help with creativity Usually just talking, talking about an idea. Um, my wife's not uh, a visual sort of a person, so I start sketching things out to try to explain to her what it is that I'm trying to do. And then as I'm explaining it, and then we talk about it, and then, you know, she's not an architect, but, you know, she's lived with me long enough that she gets the idea, right? And, mm -hmm. and sort of that becomes an inspiration. And I'm often inspired by her reaction to something, uh, you know, and I start sketching something or doodling something or I take a picture of something and, and then we talk about it and, and the conversation becomes um, part of what the design process is. What would be the biggest risk you've ever taken? Probably deciding that I would uh, agree to buy out my former partners. Um, it was, uh, it made me really nervous to do that. Um, you know, I was in the middle of becoming, I was just in the process of becoming OA president and, um, it was a really stressful time, uh, trying to negotiate, um, an early buyout for them. And, um, and it was just, it was, it was just really stressful. And finally sort of saying, yeah, okay, let's do this. Um, you know, taking the risk to go ahead and do it, um, was really quite terrifying and, and really, really stressful. Um, you know, I, I had to 
I brought my wife on to help run the business. And so it really put all of her eggs in one basket and I couldn't be there to run the business on a day-to-day basis. Um, because I had to, I had, I was OAA president. So I was out of the, out of the office or out of the house, you know, three or four days every week. And, and that was just, it was really terrifying. Um, but it was also really, um, freeing. So despite the terrifying prospect, what's pushed you over the edge to just say, fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway. And, and come what may being the optimist, you know, being the eternal optimist and, and saying, am I going to be able to make a go of this? You know, it's one thing to have all the numbers on paper and say, yeah, okay, I can pay for this or yeah, I can do this or gee, I think it'll work. Or, you know, do I have the staff to do this? And, you know, you looking at all those things, you can, you know, look at both sides of the coin until you're blue in the face. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's the right expression, but you can kind of keep, you know, look at it and analyze it and come at it from a different perspective and you can think about it and then you can look at it from another perspective. And on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, and at the end of the day, you just, I just had to say like, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Can I make this work? What do I have to do? And that's very interesting because what would have been the risk or what were the risks at the time for you to, to take the jump? And if it hadn't worked, what could have happened to you or your business? I think if I hadn't taken that step, um, I probably wouldn't have a practice today. I think that um, making the decision, um, you know, like the risks were big, right? Like I had to put everything in my life on the line, my house, you know, everything, I put everything on the line to make it work. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's slowly paying off. It's starting to pay off. Um, you know, that the risk I took then, um, is, is manifesting, um, today and the risk is going down. Um, and that makes me really happy, um, to know that I was prepared to work hard to get where I needed to be and to make the changes in the practice that I needed to, to really make it a success. And, mm-hmm. and part of that is, you know, deciding that, yeah, I was going to do this and I was not only going to serve as OAA president, but I was going to do two years of it. And then I was going to stick with another year of council and I was going to really put my effort into that part of my life and achieve something and then, and then move on and say, okay, how am I going to make this business, um, you know, the, the future, because it's everything I've got, everything I have is poured into that. Mm-hmm. And how do I make it a success? Mm-hmm. So would you say that Um, being forced into taking ownership of your own future by making that decision um, pushed you to excel and try to do better and work harder or maybe smarter. Um, And so the very fact that you made that decision actually helped you being successful. Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's empowering, right? Like it's, you know, I was, I don't want to say backed into a corner, but like when, when the car, when the chips are down, you know, you have to work hard, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. when it's raining and you know, you've got buckets of rain <laughs> coming in the roof, you've got to run around and put buckets down to catch the drips and you've got to, you've got to figure out some way to make it work. And, yeah. or you can just curl up in a ball and cry and wait for the world to end. And, and I chose to, to dive in and just make it work. And I'm prepared every single day to go into the office and do whatever it takes to make it work. It's very inspiring. Um, it, it's not very often that we hear that kind of speech. So I can say it's, it's really cool to hear. So we've talked about the biggest risk you've ever taken. What would you describe as your biggest failure? I mean, there's stuff that I feel like I failed at, like when we didn't win an RFP, but I don't see that as a failure. I see that as a learning opportunity. Um, I think maybe a failure is that you know, in the, in the six years I was on council and the two years I was president, I couldn't fix everything. I couldn't change everything. Um, but is that a failure or is that just reality? You know, you, you can only do so much. Um, and do I have any other failures? Um, God, no, I don't think so. Um, so for the couple you've mentioned, um, 
what are, what are the lessons for you that you've learned from those? Um, I'd say that, you know, it needs, it, it can't just be one person, right? It can't just be, and it can't be one person, it can't be one president, it can't be one council of, you know, a dozen or 15 people, um, that it's a collective. And that, you know, when we go back to talking about procurement, um, when there's a really shitty RFP, it can't just be, you know, the, of the 1,400 practices in Ontario, it can't be 1,395 that refuse to participate and five do. It's got to be all of us. It's got to be every single practice has to say, no, this is a really shitty RFP. I refuse to take part. And mm -hmm. that, that sense of collectivism um, really has to, has to go through all of our psyches. You know, we really have to think collectively and, and act in the public interest and act in, in the interest of the profession um, because otherwise we're not going to be here. And, and so I guess the lesson that I have is that you know, we, have to, we have to work together and that we have to work as teams um, and that one person can't do it all. So you're clearly not done with your career or your life, but uh, what's the biggest accomplishment you're, or the accomplishment you're the most proud of so far? A beautiful family. That's, that's a very inspiring one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to do a little exercise, and um, it may seem a little grim at first, but just play along because it's, it's I find it very re revealing, and I love to hear how people respond to it. Picture yourself, hopefully many, many years from now, on your deathbed, and what would be the legacy you would want to leave behind? Uh, same answer as the last one, a beautiful family. For me, that's what's really, um, really important. You know, um, I'm, uh, I'm blessed with two absolutely wonderful boys. Um, one of my boys has been married for two years. Um, you know, I have a, a wonderful daughter-in-law, uh, and, and I hope that on my deathbed, uh, many, 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 many years from now, I don't want to be surrounded by family, but I want to know that there's this, you know, legacy of Dreesons that are out there that are making a difference in the world. Um, and I can see it in my, in my kids, in my daughter-in-law. Um, I can see it in, in my wife, um, that there is a difference being made. And they're, and they're making that difference. Are any of your kids architects? No, no, my youngest is sort of, I keep saying, you know, you should really think about architecture. And he's like, no, I don't want to be an architect, but he's thinking maybe industrial design or something. But my daughter-in-law just finished uh, her undergrad at Carleton. So um, she's working in the office this summer and it's really fun. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of this interview. I do have one more question for you and it's a little more lighthearted. Uh, stones or beetles? Stones. Definitely stones. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, God, I just, everything about the, you know, the stones, like Beggar's Banquet, um, Paint It Black, Factory Girl, uh, Salt of the Earth, um, you know, Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street, Tattoo You, like this stuff was just both balladeer, you know, love song type stuff, but also just, you know, hardcore rock music and just the passion they exhibited, you know, not on every album, um, certainly not, especially not the more recent stuff, but, you know, all of that stuff was just so passionate and they're so, you know, into, into the music, um, you, they lost themselves in it and, and you can hear that, the, the passion that they have. And when you hear Keith Richards just grinding away on this guitar, um, I've got a great bootlegged album um, from, the, from, the six, from 1969 with uh, Mick Taylor and Keith Richards, and they're just going at it on stage, just grinding away in these guitars on Street Fighting Man, and it's just an amazing musical exploration, and, and I love it. So you're probably more of a Stones fan than me, but um, you're one of the first 
uh, guests on the podcast who actually answer the Stones. I'm really happy to hear that because I prefer the Stones too, and most people go for the Beatles. Um, for me, it's because the Stones appropriated a genre of music, which is blues, mm -hmm. and did it almost better than anybody else. And I find that very inspiring, knowing that they come from a completely different culture. So that was, that's my take on it. What do you think? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I'd say that they've they took on the genre of blues and and really owned it and changed it and, and made it made rock what it is today um, through that with those blues roots. And and a lot of their stuff has stayed true to blues rhythms um, and, and, and classic blues. But I think that they've you know, they've gone beyond that and dealt with some of the more folk stuff um, mm -hmm. and, and really become you know, no one, I certainly think of them when I think of their, their greatest hits. I, I don't think of the stuff that you hear on the radio. I think of the, my favorites, you know, Factory Girl, um, Salt of the Earth, you know, Stray Cat Blues. These are some great songs um, that, that you never hear. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I downloaded their entire collection a couple of years ago and I discovered so many gems. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. So that concludes it for this interview. I really want to thank you for being on the, on the podcast. It was a really, really interesting interview. I hope you had as much fun as I did. And uh, that's it for today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Akhtari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Revelator underscore Tio, or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.